If you would, take your Bibles, please, and open to the book of James, chapter 1. James, chapter 1. Our text for today is found in verses 26 and 27. James, chapter 1. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. If you were here several weeks ago, the concluding statement of Dave's sermon was, there are times when it becomes very clear to me that it must be clear to others that there is something silly about trying to make a religion out of truth. Silly about trying to make a religion out of truth. With Dave's permission uh, to expand on that thought, I want us to consider the matter of religion as the focus of our meditation today. These two verses are critical to the whole book of James. In fact, I I'm convinced that this is the outline for the book. Here at the, begin, at the end of the introduction, James is going to talk about three points, and that's what the rest of the book is about. But why are they so important? Well, beyond the fact that they provide the outline, they're the two words, a noun and an adjective, religion and religious. And the problem is how we define these words. I must tell you that I wish the translators had used a different word in English, for the Greek words, because I'm convinced that what James was talking about is not what we think about when we think of the words religious and religion. Um, I was telling Dave, I looked at over half a dozen English translations, and with one exception, they all used the word religion, and I really wish they hadn't. But the one that doesn't is the common English Bible. If those who claim devotion to God that is, claim to be religious, don't control what they say, they mislead themselves, their devotion, their religion, is worthless. True devotion, the kind that is pure and faultless before God the Father, is this, to care for orphans and widows and their difficulties, and to keep the world from contaminating us. We'll look at this as we go along in the sermon. There are three things I want us to consider today. First of all, the modern world's definition of religion, and how the church sadly, has embraced that. Secondly, the New Testament view of things and that of the early church. And then finally, we will look at our text. What does James mean uh, in these two verses? In a book that came out ten years ago, um, William Cavanaugh wrote um, The Myth of Religious Violence, Secular Ideology and the Roots of Modern Conflict. And in his second chapter, he writes, Outside of the modern West, there is no significant concept equivalent to what we think of as religion. We are very comfortable with the word religion, but you go outside the modern West and at least what we think of as religion does not exist in other cultures. This echoes uh, a book that came out in 1962, uh, The Meaning and End of Religion by Wilfred Cantwell Smith. He points out that religion as a discrete category of human activity is an invention of the modern West. 
the religion is something that we, we can say, you can study me, Damon, as a person and all these different parts of my life. And then over here is one part that we will call the religious part of Damon Woods. Kavanaugh points out that ancient languages have no word that approximates the modern English, what we mean when we say religion. Well, you can see we have a problem because we are here in the modern West and we're reading the book of James and we see this word and it, it conjures up all sorts of images that I think James did not have in mind at all. One more thing from Kavanaugh. Religion and modernity indicates a universal genus of which the various religions are species. Each religion comes to be demarcated by a system of propositions. Religion is identified as an essentially interior, private impulse. That's really critical, because I think that's what most Christians think of the Christian faith, that it is a private, interior impulse. And yet James says, the translators use the word religion, that it is in fact to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So why does James use the word religion or religious? He doesn't. Okay, We will consider this as we go along. But let's, let's consider how the modern world views religion. Interestingly enough, oftentimes we take our lead in this matter from governments. We find that the government, at least in this country, has made a distinction between churches and church agencies. So churches are okay, church agencies are seen as, well, they're not, not that they're not okay, but they're not seen as religious activities. They serve a social function. So the government tells us religion is over here and society, social functions are over here. And the implication is that religion is not something that is inherently social. In liberal societies, such as we live in, religion is defined as a matter of beliefs. Okay? And not beliefs about anything, but beliefs about the transcendental, the otherworldly, things not connected, in, a, in essence, to this reality. So, religion is seen as having no social impact, no social effect. Um, as one person put it, uh, privately engaging, it's that interior impulse, socially irrelevant. It has nothing to do with society. Okay. It is also seen as a matter of conscience and belief. So it's removed from the realm of the physical. So, for example, if you have a religious uh, organization that has a hospital, which takes care of the physical needs of people, that is seen as not religious activity. That is seen as social and therefore not religious. By identifying religious or religion as separate from the rest of society, politics, economics, and so forth, this is seen as the modern view of religion. And those who don't see that, those who see religion as in fact impacting other aspects of life, are seen as in need of being modernized. When colonizers came to the New World and beyond, they met people for whom there was no separate category of religion, and so they were seen as primitive, and they needed to be modernized. We don't live in similar circumstances. We're not being colonized as such. 
But I do think that we have embraced the world's view of religion as something that is socially irrelevant. Go to church, pray at home, have this warm, fuzzy feeling in your heart, let it affect your conscience, but don't let it affect the rest of life. And so religion is seen as something quite separate from reality, if you wish. And sadly, the church has gone along with that. What did the, new, the early church think about this? Well, if, if you want to, you can turn to um, John chapter 4. We have the familiar story there. Uh, Jesus and his disciples are in Judea, where John the Baptist is baptizing. And then the word gets around, ooh, Jesus is baptizing more people than John. So Jesus decides to go to Galilee. John the Baptist will be in Judea. He will go up to Galilee. But to do that, he has to pass through Samaria. And he's with his disciples. And they come to a, a Samaritan town called Sychar, where Jacob had, had dug a well millennia before. And um, it's noontime. Jesus is tired. It's one of those interesting passages. We are given insight into his humanity. The disciples go into town to get food. Lo and behold, here comes a woman in the middle of the day to get water from the well. It's very unusual because it's the hottest part of the day. There are no other people there because wells were usually a, a place where women congregated and gossiped and talked and all that. Well, we find out she's probably doing that because she's been married five times and she's now living with the sixth man, which Jesus tells her he knows about this. She is really shocked that he has this information. And she says, I perceive that you are a prophet. Um, if you look at verse number 19, John 4:19, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you, what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. She asked Jesus about religion. We worship here. You guys worship there. On, on that mountain, we worship on this mountain. And he changes the whole, the whole dynamic, the whole perspective. You see, nowhere in the New Testament is the Christian faith presented as a religion, as a place you need to go to in order to worship. We worship in spirit and in truth. Religion is needed when you have a wall of separation between God and humanity. Well, the Lord Jesus, in coming to the world, has torn down that wall. So we have no need of sacred places, sacred geography. Um, I would even say of sacred days, of a sacred calendar, and more beyond that. Jesus came to bring new life, not a new religion. And as God's people, we should see that. This is one of the reasons why the early Christians, I mean, early on, they were considered atheists. Pagans referred to Christians as atheists because they didn't have temples, they didn't have all these rituals, they didn't have all these rites. They believed in one God. They were seen as atheists. And if you, if you go back to church history, you find that there's no concern. It's like, Hey, let's go to Nazareth. That's where Jesus grew up. 
Or let's go to Bethlehem, that's where he was born. Or let's go to the Jordan River, that's where he was baptized. None of that. Because the Christian faith is truth. It is not religion. There are no pilgrimages to be had. Um, No need for temples. Dare I say even church buildings. The body of Christ is the church, the people themselves. We are God's people. As such, as one writer puts it, Christianity is the end of religion. Religion is because there's a wall between us and God. Jesus has torn that wall down. It is through Jesus that we have access to God the Father. Religion is non-essential. In Jesus Christ, the life that was lost to us as human beings which could only be symbolized or signified in rituals, is now been restored to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. So why does James speak of religion? Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this. Or religion that is worthless. Well, the bottom line is, he doesn't. He doesn't. This is a fault of those who have translated the Bible, or the New Testament, from Greek into English. So again, if you would look at James 1, just to go over our text again, anyone who considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. When the Bible was first translated into Latin, it was written in Hebrew and in Greek. Well, Jerome in the 4th century translated into Latin because that was the language that most people in the Mediterranean were familiar with. He chose to use the word religio, from which we get religion in English. Um, It's interesting that he chose this word because in Roman society, religio referred to your social obligations to your family. Um, It was not what we would think of as religious. Oh, I've got to go to temple or I've got to burn some incense or offer an animal as a sacrifice. It had nothing to do with what we would call religious activity. It was family. You had social obligations within your family. And we're not quite sure, but we actually think religio comes from two Latin words, re, to do again, ligare, to tie your sandals. So you're re-tying your sandals. You're re-binding. You are recommitting yourself. That is, you recognize your obligations to your family. To say that something was religio for a person meant that it carried a serious obligation for that person. And it, it might have included going to the temple and things like that, but it began in the family. It began in the arena that we would call secular. In the early church, we don't find this word used, not until Jerome in the third century. And even then, he only used it five times in translating the scripture into Latin. The word in Greek that James uses is threskeia. And it's used only three times in the New Testament, so it's not an incredibly common word. Um, We find it when Paul gives a defense of himself to King Agrippa. 
Um, he says, they have known me for a long time and can testify if they are willing that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And then a couple verses later, he says, this is the promise for our 12 tribes. Uh, this is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly s- serve God day and night. In both places, Paul says, our religion, our 12 tribes. The the pronoun there, the possessive pronoun, our, I think, is what is important. He sees Israel as a community. And so, again, while the translators will use the word religion, I think Paul is thinking in terms of national obligation. I am a Jew, I'm part of Israel, um, and to be a Jew means I have certain obligations. So what is James saying here in our passage today? I think he's actually fleshing out what comes in the verses before that. And this is one of the problems of choosing two verses, not in isolation, but not looking at the verses before. But in the verses before, he speaks of the perfect law that gives liberty or that gives freedom. In other words, as we saw last week when we looked at freedom, Who does God give the law to? Does he give it to slaves? No. Israel was in captivity. They were slaves for four centuries. And they are delivered. God frees them. They are now free people. And now God says, now that you're free, this is what you're supposed to do. And these are the things you're not supposed to do. God's law tells them as free people, this is how they're supposed to live. And James sort of fleshes that out to give the three points of the outline of the rest of the book. You are to control your tongue. You are to care for those who are in need. And you are to have personal holiness. Keep yourself from being contaminated by the world. Um, Again, why do translators use the word religion? Well, as much as I wish they'd chosen a different word, they've picked up something very important. It's interesting, James is talking about external activities. Okay? When you control your tongue, you control the words that come out of your mouth. When you care for those who are in need, when you keep yourself from being contaminated by the world, this speaks of external activities. We know from the Gospels, Jesus tells us that what we do expresses what is in our heart. And so while one might say, well, religion is this private impulse, interior impulse, yeah, it comes out in your external actions. And so for that reason, I'm not going to scratch out religion here in James 1, because I think it does point out to something quite important, that is how we act. Second question, why these three features? Why does he point to these three things? Well, I think for two reasons. First of all, it fleshes out, as I said earlier, what he said in the earlier verses. But also they show us how we are supposed to be like our Heavenly Father. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. This is a controlled tongue. And then in verse number five, if you lack anything, you should ask to God who gives generously to all. We should be like our Father, giving to those who are in need generously to those who are in need. And then we see that God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone because he is holy. So we are to be holy. These three things, if we live this way, we are in fact reflecting our Heavenly Father. 
As James teaches us how we should live, he tells us we are to be like our Father. So if you look at the rest of the book, uh, he, will, he doesn't do them in the same order, interestingly enough. He begins out with talking about caring for those in need, and then in chapter 3, controlling your tongue, and then toward the end of chapter 3, into verse, uh, chapter six, 5, he deals with living a holy life. Let's look at these three things quickly. First of all, a controlled tongue. James does not call us to silence. That's important. There is a place for silence, and I think a very important place. But I'm reminded of the psalm where David said, you know, I I decided I'm just not going to say anything. I'm just not going to say anything anymore. And and then all of a sudden it started to burn within him. Uh, James doesn't say, never say a word, and then you play it safe. No, we are, in fact, to control our tongues. In chapter 3, keep a tight rein on your tongue, like you do on a horse. Here, James makes a connection, I think, between the heart and the mouth. He doesn't mention it specifically. But he says, don't consider yourself religious and deceive yourself. That's an interior thing. If, in fact, what's coming out of your mouth shows a lack of control. There is a connection between what we think, what's in our heart, and what comes out of our mouth. Um, I think we need to be very careful. As Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's like if you have a cup of coffee, a cup on a saucer, and you begin to pour the coffee and it overflows, that's what comes out of your mouth. It's what's in your heart, it's what comes out. It is possible to be a hypocrite, to have a controlled tongue in public. Um, But James says, be careful that you're not deceived. The second feature is caring for those in need. Um, As God is generous, so we are to be generous as well. If God is our Father, then as his children, as like father, like son, we should in fact be like him. And he who gives generously, we should give to those who are in need. In Psalm 68, we are told, a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. That's God. And that's who we are supposed to be as well. We are to be moved by the need of others. We should not look for anything in return. We give because our Heavenly Father does as well. The third feature is to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Um, Up to this point, one could say that what James has said could be true of unbelievers. An unbeliever can, in fact, control their tongue. And an unbeliever can, in fact, be generous to those who are in need. But here we come to something that marks those as the children of God as being quite different. We are not like the world. And we are not to be contaminated by the thinking and the actions of the world. The key here is the idea of world. It is used throughout the New Testament, the word cosmos, uh, to represent the whole scheme of human activity and thinking. Generally, though not 100%, but the majority of it is organized in opposition to God. The world does not want to submit to God. It wants to be the world. 
It wants to be in charge. That type of thinking does in fact infect us. It does affect us. And James says we are not, we are not to allow ourselves to be contaminated by the world, a world that seeks to be self-sufficient. I don't need anyone. I don't need God. I don't think anyone ever says that out loud. Maybe some people do. But in our actions, in, a, in our thoughts, I think we're like, I got this. I, I, I'm, it's covered. Unless something really bad happens, then we'll, God, can you help me out? But generally, we see ourselves as being quite self-sufficient. The reality is that many people, if not most people, live as though God does not exist. Francis Schaeffer used to refer to this as practical atheism. Even we who are God's people. When something happens, is our first thought to look to God? Or is it, I can take care of this? And then if that doesn't work out, then we will ask God. It is so easy to live or to pretend to live as though God does not exist. Why does James write this? I mean, don't we know this already? Don't his readers know this already? Why do they have to be told this? Well, I would suggest there are three reasons why James tells us that we are to control our tongues, we are to give to those who are in need, and we are not to be contaminated by a world that stands in opposition to God. I'd suggest three reasons. First of all, self-deception. We are so good at deceiving ourselves. And here in verse 26, James warns against deceiving ourselves. That somehow we think, yeah, I've... I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty good Christian. Um, I walk with the Lord. I'm, I'm okay. Um, James is like, I, I think you, in fact, may be deceiving yourselves. Verse number 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. James was keenly aware that we are prone to self-deception particularly I think those of us who are the people of God. We are in a battle and the enemy has penitents, has collaborators within our own thinking. We are so prone to self-deception. The people to whom James wrote this letter um, have left Jerusalem because of persecution. They are now in the big wide world and I would say compared to their neighbors, they're pretty good people. They're moral people. They don't do what other people do. And as such, they are prone to self-deception. I think we're no different. Twenty centuries later, I think we are just as prone to self-deception. So that's the first reason why he writes this. The second is persecution. If you look at the first verse of James, he is writing this to the 12 tribes that are scattered. And why are they scattered? Because of persecution. They were in Jerusalem. Stephen is the first martyr. He is put to death. And then James, the first of the disciples, is beheaded. And the, those who have money leave town. Many of them are not originally from Palestine. They have immigrated there from the diaspora. And now they're like, yeah, let's, maybe we need to be part of the diaspora again. They face persecution. What does it mean to be a Christian in the face of persecution? Usually when I think of Christians who are being persecuted, I think of them meeting secretly. 
um, in the former Soviet Union, uh, the People's Republic of China even today, but in other places where they have to meet secretly um, because the government, in fact, uh, will persecute them, will put them in jail if they're caught worshipping in a particular way. Um, I, I don't think that's it. That's, I don't think that's what we should think of in terms of persecution. If you are a believer, if you are a Christian, and you live in a pagan society, and you control your tongue, and you take care of those in need, and you keep yourself from being contaminated by the world, you're going to stand out. Because you live differently than other people. Forget that maybe every Sunday morning or Sunday night you sneak off to the woods and with other believers and you pray and you do all that secretly. No, it's your everyday life. And that's where the temptation comes in to say, listen, if, if I'm going to hang out with unbelievers, I've got to talk like an unbeliever. I've got to act like an unbeliever because if I do what James says here, I'm going to be so busted. People are going to know you're a Christian, aren't you? Because you watch what you say and you take care of those who are in need. You have compassion for people. You must be a Christian. So James writes to these people that in fact, it is something that is to be seen in their living. Not in their private church services, but in their living. So, Self-deception, which we are prone to. Persecution. I don't think we suffer persecution, but we don't want to stand out. We don't want to be, you know, oh, you're a Christian. But the third thing, I think is the greatest danger for us, is privatization. That is when for us, being a Christian is a private interior impulse. I'm a Christian. How do I know? Well, because in my heart, in my conscience, in my mind, I am a Christian. Yeah, but you, you kind of act like everybody else. Well, that's okay, because being a Christian is about what's inside, not what's outside. And for those of us who are raised with legalism, this is one of the reasons we're scared that you know, if you start making rules, then you, you get legalistic. Listen, being a Christian is both who you are inside and outside. And James writes to people who have been scattered, who are prone to self-deception, who are suffering persecution, and they have a tendency to say the faith is purely interior. It's what's in my heart. I want to blend in. I don't want to be seen as different from anyone else. And let's face it, um, where you work, you probably work with people who have different religious beliefs than you. Um, go to a restaurant and there may be five or ten religions represented by all the customers that are there. Um, do we want to stand out? Or do we just say, everyone, you can be what you want, just make sure it's inside your heart and not in your external actions. I'm convinced that if James were to write to us today, this is unique, I think, in Scripture, that what he wrote, he could write again today. Because I think we have the same problems today. We are prone to self-deception. Um, persecution maybe not so bad, but we, we don't want to be singled out. And we have made our faith an interior matter. It's private. 
It doesn't affect our day-to-day lives. We who follow Jesus should control our tongues. In a culture, by the way, that encourages the opposite. We should care for those in need. In a culture in which institutions are seen as being responsible for that. You know, the government will take care of them. No, if we are followers of Jesus, we as individuals are to help those who are in need. And those who follow in the footsteps of Jesus should keep ourselves from being polluted by a system that is contrary to God's law. A system that is organized in terms of human wisdom to achieve human goals. No reference to God. Oh, we might say, you know, God bless America. But in terms of what God says, God's laws, these are forgotten. In a culture that if nothing else through advertising bombards our senses, our thoughts, our imaginations, and in the process erodes our values and our standards. The temptation is to keep our religion private, and this is wrong. As God's people, we have a counter-community, the church. We have a counter-value system, the gospel. And we have a counter-rationale, that is vocation, God's calling in our lives. In the modern West, religion is relegated to the interior. It is seen as private. It is seen as an impulse. And it is interesting that many people would say, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Again, that's something that is very much interior and it is the church, sadly, that clings to religion, to religious. Something that has come to mean not what God intended in the New Testament. In the modern world, religion has come to mean doctrine, intellectual propositions, conscience, feeling. The emphasis is on what you believe and not what you practice. And in our society, a what you believe and what you practice don't have to be on the same wavelength. They don't have to be. And it doesn't bother people that they can have this disconnect between what they say they believe and what they actually do. Um, Some years ago, I think Dave was with us, uh, Rosa, again, I went to hear over at Hollywood Presbyterian. um, His last name is Mangalwadi um, from India. And he, he mentioned that Time Magazine, this is, 20 years ago, had done a a phone survey and they found that something like, it was over 50%, something like 75% of people who said they were vegetarian said they'd had meat in the previous 24 hours. (laughs) Wait a minute, if you're a vegetarian, you don't eat meat. But for some reason, it, it doesn't bother people to say, oh no, I'm a vegetarian and I went to McDonald's yesterday. It doesn't. And so, if you were to say, I'm a Christian, but I don't control my tongue, I don't give to those who are in need, I, I am contaminated left and right by the world, it doesn't seem to bother because that's the way the culture is around us. Both Smith and Kavanaugh in their books on religion notice that the rise of the concept of religion as a concept is marked by a decline of what we call religious practices. 
Because now religion is in your heart. It's not what you do. Kavanaugh says, the invention of the modern concept of religion accompanies the decline of the church as the public communal practice of the virtue of religio, or of obligation. The more we talk about religion, the less we do what God has called us to do. And that's what Dave said at the end of his sermon, how silly it is, how silly it is to somehow reduce truth to religion. Because what you've done is you've defanged it, you've taken all the power out of it. If we doubt this, if we could continue through James, in James chapter 2, he will tell us that faith without works is dead. This means religion can't simply be an interior impulse. He tells us, do not be deceived, my dear brothers. I've said this in the past, but you know, people, not so much lately, but for a while it was sort of a fad, what would Jesus do? And I think this is absolutely the wrong question to ask. The question to ask is, what did Jesus do? What did he do? And it requires that we know what he did. We study the Gospels and learn of him. It causes us to read the New Testament, the Old Testament, and the light of Jesus. And rather than coming up with some theoretical formula of, yeah, I wonder what Jesus would do. What, in fact, did Jesus do? And what we see is that he cared for those who were in need. And he kept himself from being contaminated by the world. In 1 Corinthians 13, which is oftentimes known as the love chapter, it is in fact a portrait of the Lord Jesus. It is what he did, how he lived his life. And I think if James could summarize his book, but these two verses in particular, he would say, follow the example of Jesus. Follow the example of Jesus. Oftentimes when we read scripture, we do so in a very theoretical or abstract way. We don't always ask, oh, what should I now do? Now that I've read this, what am I supposed to do? I've read it, what am I supposed to do? We're not supposed to simply read it, but we're also to put it into practice. Jesus came to reveal to us what the Father had to say. He didn't come to start a new religion. In fact, he got rid of religion. The Christian faith is the end of religion. He called us to be like our Heavenly Father. He has torn down the wall between us. We are now reunited with God, and we are to show that in our living. And the answer is not religion. The answer is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, lived out day after day. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so familiar, we are so comfortable with the word religion. And in many ways, we have embraced the world's view that it's something you keep to yourself. And be as religious as you want, just keep it to yourself. And the idea that it should, in fact, affect our actions and what we do seems so foreign to us. We're supposed to be a melting pot. How dare we stand out 
as those who stand for certain ethical values. How dare we be people who show compassion to others? We should let agencies take care of that. And how dare we keep ourselves from being contaminated by the world? I thank you for what James wrote centuries ago to people who were scattered because of persecution. But here we are without persecution, and yet these words have so much to say to us. And in his words, may we not be hearers only, but doers as well. I thank you for bringing us together today. That we were able to speak to one another of needs. Rory's grandmother, our grandfather, Darren's friends that he mentioned, for Kim's birthday, for all of these things. We've come to worship you. We've come into your presence. And now as we leave this place, may our faith not simply, simply be something that's in our hearts, that's in our minds, something that is seen moment by moment in our actions. May we be people who are marked by devotion to our Father in Heaven. As we leave this place today, may your Spirit and grace go with us. May we have a sense of your presence throughout this week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.